1: Come um, with me. That the word of God says it, I believe it!
0: And that's the way it
1: is. And now, here is Janet Mefford.
0: Welcome everybody. You might remember that almost 2 decades ago, former CBS reporter Bernard Goldberg wrote a book called Bias. That book exposed how the dominant liberal mindset among those in American journalism and media culture led to a huge distortion of the news that Americans consume. And as a newspaper journalist at the time, I really appreciated Goldberg's confirmation that what I was experiencing with liberal bias in my own newsroom was in fact a widespread problem in an industry that was supposed to care about facts, ethics, and neutrality. But time change, and so has journalism, such that it almost seems quaint now to think that liberal bias is the biggest problem in America's newsrooms. And as my next guest points out, our media isn't just biased anymore. It is deeply and thoroughly corrupt. And we are really delighted to welcome to the show today Alex Marlowe. He is the editor-in-chief of Breitbart News Network and hosts the Breitbart News Daily Radio Show on Sirius XM. He's also author of a great book. It's called Breaking the News, Exposing the Establishment Media's Hidden Deals and Secret Corruption. Alex, wonderful to have you with us. How are you doing?
2: I'm doing great, Janet. Thanks so much for the great introduction.
0: You bet. You say these days journalism obviously isn't just biased. It's now driven by this mindset that newsrooms have to advance leftism and globalism and corporatism. What do people need to know about this new media culture and the extent of the problem? Because you did a big investigation here, and it's just great.
2: Uh, yeah, and you're correct to note Bernie Goldberg's book, which uh, those of us in the media industry probably all either read or should have read. And uh, this book is a major extension of that, as well as some of the themes that Mark Levin covered in his Unfreedom of the Press book a couple of years back. Uh, But it's not just enough to say the media is biased to the left at this point. The media is weaponized against people like Donald Trump, his supporters, people who believe that America's Judeo-Christian founding should be preserved at all, uh, and really on behalf of these corporate interests worldwide. And this is something that really stunned me in my year of research into this. And there's 1,200 endnotes. In this book, there's no fake news here. Uh, there, there's very limited anonymous sources, which have become uh, in vogue for whatever reason with the establishment media during the during the Trump years. Yep. Uh, but all this is backed up factual stuff. And what I found is that the media is trying to not just do the bidding of the left, but trying to preserve corporate interests worldwide at the expense of advancing American values and even the truth. That's crazy. I, I mean, it's undeniable,
0: but it's crazy. And you know, it's so interesting because when you go back to your initial days at Breitbart, you were the first employee there in 2008, when did this big problem in corporate media culture begin to morph from just being liberally biased, in most cases, into outright leftist activism? What changed, in other words, in the corporate media culture over these many years that, that have, we have seen this transition taking place from just biased to being activists?
2: Yeah, there was a moment that happened and you could pinpoint it on the calendars when Donald Trump came down that escalator and announced his candidacy for president. And then all of a sudden, some of us who were in conservative media, as I was, Uh, We were seen as somewhat of a sideshow, I think, to the establishment media. But then all of a sudden we were beating them uh, because with Trump as sort of a conduit For some of those uh, populist values that a lot of the conservative voter base had in this country and with the democratization of the web for a brief moment on social media, social media is far from democratized now, but for a minute it was back in the mid to 2010s Uh, and places like Breitbart started to beat places like CNN and The New York Times. On social media. And when that happened, all of a sudden these values that America is not such a horrible place, uh, that our border shouldn't be open, that we're in too many wars, uh, basic stuff like that that are not popular in Washington start to really take hold in the public. Once that happened, the media turned a corner and they had two choices, either embrace the people who like Donald Trump or, or try to destroy them. And they clearly chose the latter.
0: Well, they did. And I think that, that it's, it really was when Donald Trump came down that escalator. And I think that you guys have done a really great job actually over at Breitbart in actually reporting. I mean, this, this is the thing that really strikes me is that the media, uh, such that it is, got used to being the only voice in town and everybody kind of did what the New York Times did and, and went along with the whole uh, voice that they wanted to have as one. And if you ever kind of de- you know deviated from that narrative, uh, you wouldn't maybe have a job very long in the corporate media culture, and you're right, the democratization of the internet really became a problem for them, such that they went after you guys quite a bit, not only lying about you, but trying to take away any ability to monetize your content. I mean, I, what changed for you as an outlet at Breitbart when this started to progress?
2: Yeah, I got to tell you that this is one of the saddest things to talk about, because what drew me to the internet and why I didn't go to law school or some sort of a traditional route that I could have gone down was that the internet was the wild west and it was decentralized. And it was a place where ideas could rise to the top. The cream could rise to the top. You could find your own audience. And Breitbart did, and we did it bigger and better than anyone else. And then all of a sudden, once Trump became a major player, they started to change the rules to penalize the people who had taken advantage of some of these platforms that were being established, like Facebook and Twitter and Google and places that were supposed to just give you the information. Well, all of a sudden, those places started to turn the dials up on things like CNN and down on places like Breitbart. And we saw a, a peak really heading into the 2016 election and just a drastic turndown by those places in terms of sending us traffic. And this is entirely unfair and, uh, in my opinion, should be illegal because a lot of people build businesses depending on these platforms being politically neutral. Then they decided we weren't going to be politically neutral. We were going to be politically biased to the left and we're going to penalize people for conservative content, even if it's accurate. That's exactly what happened. And to this day, it's still legal because Republicans won't do anything about it.
0: I know it's maddening. Well, one of the people you talk about in your book, and I think this is news to a lot of people, is the power of kind of the female George Soros, who happens to be the widow of Steve Jobs, the founder of Apple. And that's Laurene Powell Jobs. And I was really surprised when I was reading your book and looking at all the influence that she has on left-wing media outlets. Tell us a little bit about her influence on the news that we get and the extent of her reach.
2: Yeah, this is something that was another one of the big shockers for me, because I was looking into some of the boards and some of the What is running some of these businesses? Uh, And when I started to put together that a lot of the major newsroom decisions uh, were taking place at a level much higher than the journalists you might see on Twitter or or on your TV screen. And I realized that these boardrooms are controlling a lot. And I noticed a very strange pattern uh, with this thing called the Emerson Collective, which basically functions as Lorene Powell Jobs' personal trust. But it also owns pretty much just a massive portion. Of the establishment media and the activist left media, which I thought was really interesting. I started to look into it. The Emerson Collective is staffed by a bunch of Obama alumni, uh, but it's really owned and operated by one person, Steve Jobs' widow, Lorene Powell Jobs, who inherited a lot of wealth. Uh, And with that wealth, she bought up the Atlantic. Uh, and she got uh, Axios, which is a popular D.C. political website. But she also owns the activist lab, Mother Jones, ProPublica. Those are names that might be familiar uh, to some of your audience. Yep. But she also owns overtly partisan left-wing outlets, something called Courier Newsroom, which feeds Democrat propaganda essentially into local news outlets. It's a totally corrupt operation, and it's all centerpieced around one woman who is largely anonymous and has unspeakable amounts of wealth.
0: Crazy. How much money is involved? Do we have any idea how much money she's actually forking over to get this done?
2: This is the trick. She structured the the Emerson Collective as part personal trust, part philanthropic operation, and part investment operation, which means that there's very little disclosed about where the money is going. But we do know when she takes a loss, she chalks it up to to philanthropy. If she can make a profit, which would be very marginal for someone who's worth $20 billion. But if she makes a profit, she can call it investing. It's all trickery that shouldn't be legal, but it is. And she's using it to take advantage uh, and to position herself at the centerpiece of the Democrat apparatus.
0: Well, it's kind of odd to look at philanthropy as money being, you know, fueled and going directly into some of these news organizations. I mean, there was a time when you, if you were a news organization, you actually actually had to make your own money. You didn't have big donors keeping you afloat. And I'm wondering how common that really is to have this big leftist money keeping a lot of these outlets afloat.
2: Uh, This is one of the things that I learned in the book that was, I wouldn't say shocking, but it was certainly revealing uh, to me when I noticed this pattern, which is that most of these newsrooms aren't there to make money. They're there to prop up some sort of vested interest. Uh, Take Washington Post. It's owned by world's richest man, Jeff Bezos. I go through the history of the New York Times, which saw a huge influx of investment from a guy named Carlos Slim, who at one time was the, the, the richest man in the world. Uh, he's a Mexican billionaire, and he's an open borders advocate.
0: I'll tell you what, hang on there, Alex. we got to pause for a very quick break. Hate to do that, but we'll be back with Alex Marlowe. His book is called Breaking the News. You're listening to Janet Meffer today. After taking the morning-after pill, this mom immediately felt sick and nauseated as she tried to end her pregnancy. While searching for medical care, she found a preborn center, where she hoped to rule out that she was pregnant.
3: I had an ultrasound done right then and there. After hearing the baby's heartbeat, I instantly thanked God and said, may your will be done. Lord.
0: I'm seven months pregnant now. I thank God every day for my little miracle. Preborn centers are the largest providers of free ultrasounds in America, introducing moms in crisis to the life growing inside of them and sharing the the Gospel in action. When a mother meets her baby on ultrasound and hears the heartbeat, she'll choose life 80% of the time. Will you join preborn in the cause for life? For $140, you can sponsor five ultrasounds and help rescue five babies' lives. To donate, call 855 402 BABY. That's 855 402 2229. All gifts are tax deductible. 855 402 BABY, or there's a preborn banner to click at janetmefford.com. Hi, this is Janet Mefford. Did you miss the deadline to sign up for a health program at the end of 2020? If so, I have good news. A special enrollment period is taking place now through August 15th. Meaning that if you're looking to enroll in a new healthcare program for 2021, you can do so without the need for a qualifying event. More than 200,000 Americans trust Liberty HealthShare for their healthcare needs. Liberty HealthShare is a nonprofit healthcare sharing ministry that offers affordable healthcare sharing programs, starting as low as $199 per month. Liberty HealthShare gives you the ability to choose any doctor or hospital across the nation. Memberships are for individuals, couples, and families, offering a variety of options to best suit your needs discover more about the power of sharing at libertyhealthshare.org slash jmt today for more information call 855-585-4237 855-585-4237 or libertyhealthshare.org slash jmt
1: you're listening to janet mefford today and now here's janet
0: Well, this is a really great book, Breaking the News, Exposing the Establishment Media's Hidden Deals and Secret Corruption by Alex Marlow, who's editor-in-chief of Breitbart News Network. And we were talking a little bit, uh, Alex, I think you're spot on about this when you say that the media, the big corporate media culture, is not there necessarily to make money. They're there to prop up their vested interests. And you were giving some examples of that, Loring Powell Jobs being just one of them, funneling all of these millions into outlets like The Atlantic and Axios and so forth. But you were mentioning some others as well.
2: Yeah, absolutely. So so she the, so the Powell jobs, she not just funds the activist media and the establishment media, but she also funds Democrat candidates. Uh, but this pattern goes throughout a lot of these major newsrooms. I take Michael Bloomberg, who is the biggest name in in economic news. There's no close second. He's practically a monopolistic status. Uh, he also cuts sweetheart deals with the Chinese and he funds the Democrat Party to the tune of nine figures, I think, Uh, Per election cycle. So these people all have vested interests. And I looked at this from corporate boardroom to corporate boardroom. And he starts doing really disturbing patterns. Like, for example, uh, you might notice how there's not going to be a lot of Disney movies where China is going to be the bad guy. (laughs) Well, ABC owns Disney or ABC and Disney are one. And ABC News is not going to do a lot of tough reporting on China. Also, because Disney's got to open all those movies in China and have their theme parks within China. So if you think you're getting dependable news on the coronavirus from from ABC, uh, you're kidding yourself. Same thing goes with NBC, which is part of NBC Comcast Universal, which literally just opened up a theme park in Beijing two weeks ago. Ugh. So uh, that's why you see guys like John Cena, the WWE wrestler, kowtowing to China so easily. He's got to sell tickets to, to, to the Chinese people and to the Chinese marketplace. And he could get kicked out for something as simple as saying that Taiwan is a country. Again, universal part of NBC. And so, again, you can't trust what NBC is reporting to you they want the coronavirus or anything China does. This is the pattern. These are just a few examples that are happening in virtually every newsroom. And it's truly frightening.
0: Well, it is frightening. And you look at the additional information about NBC Universal. You point out that its CEO was a big bundler for the Obama campaign. I mean, how do we think the news is going to turn out if you have somebody like that at the helm?
2: Yeah, that's exactly right. And this is what we've noticed in every, I mean, I, I can go on and on, and on uh, it, CNN's vice president of news gathering is married to a recently appointed or someone who's soon to be appointed uh, nominee for the Biden administration. Tom Nides, <laughs> Kareem Jean-Pierre, who's a deputy press secretary, is married to a CNN anchor, Suzanne Malvo. Uh, People forget this stuff. Jake Tapper's wife worked for Planned Parenthood. Mm -hmm. A lot of people just think, oh, wow, George Stephanopoulos, he worked for Clinton. Ha ha ha. It's not funny. (laughs) The entire newsroom, it seems like in some places, where there are people literally in bed with the media that's supposed to cover them fairly.
0: Yeah. That's right. I completely agree with you on that. It has driven me crazy for years that Stephanopoulos is considered to be a journalist. It's ridiculous. But, you know, you talk about some of these case studies, Alex, which I think are so important. You mentioned MSNBC and NBC Universal. Sure. But when you go to the New York Times, you say it's essentially a weapon. I think that's a really good way to describe the New York Times. Explain what you're talking about there.
2: I'm talking about the New York Times as clearly as vested interest. And the clearest example is how you look at their board, and they've got people who are pro-open borders. You've got—we uh, identified a guy who's one of the top players in Obama world. One of Obama's top confidants is on the board there, and then you see the pattern of their newsroom, and they structured it in recent years around the issue of race. And it, it's as if America didn't do enough self-flagellation for our horrible history of slavery. It seems like we're constantly talking about it. Yes, yeah, slavery is horrible. We're free to talk about it. But the, the New York Times over the last five years or so has made it the centerpiece of their newsroom, culminating with the end of the Robert Mueller report when the Russian narrative failed for, for the left. Yeah. Once that happened, the New York Times made a concerted and public effort to pivot their newsroom to, to have their centerpiece be race in America. And what they did is they started to create these fake news stories like the 1619 Project, yeah. which is literally based on debunked history and not history debunked by old white guys, history debunked by, for example, a prominent African-American studies professor at at Northwestern University took huge issue with 1619. Yet 1619 is put in our face as something that is uh, not just Credible, but is award winning. It won a Pulitzer Prize. There's curriculum that's being drawn up based around this thing. And it's all because the New York Times has been pushing this agenda to uh, make America think of itself as this fundamentally indecent racist place.
0: Right. And then they have to issue clarifications. I don't know if it was a full correction, but they had to come back and say, okay, we've adjusted this. The idea that Nicole Hannah Jones said that the American revolution was fought primarily to preserve slavery. They altered that to say, okay, well, some of, you know, some of the colonists were involved in that. I mean, it's just a joke. And then you have the Barry Weiss situation who was, you know, she resigned because she said it's so woke and it's no good for journalism. You would think that there would be more people in a newsroom who would say, well, wait a minute i wasn't hired to do this i was hired to go out and report on the news surely there have to be a couple of people left at the new york times who think about the importance of journalism but maybe maybe not
2: there's a problem here because there's two pull factors away from people doing that independent-minded reporting that we've all come to love about this country Uh, first of all there's a massive financial incentive to sell out to a corporation and thus the Democrat Party, which is one and the same at this point. Uh, But there's also a cultural factor, and this is something that's almost scarier in my opinion, is that as I'm, I'm about 35 and people my age were never, never grew up being told that America is an exceptional place. We were told America is a neutral place in the past. <laughs> and we weren't raised as, as we were raised much more secularly than previous generations. And these sort of secular committed leftists are coming up through the newsrooms and they're demanding a culture that is overtly political in everything they do and political to the left which means that you're going to get a lot of pressure on you within the company if you don't go along with the woke status quo. This is very frightening, and if newsrooms don't start pushing back right away, they're going to be completely taken over.
0: Yep, you're right about that. I, I thought it was interesting, too, Alex, what you r- reported in your book is that President Trump actually tried repeatedly to win over the media establishment, even as he was calling them, especially CNN, calling them fake news. And that's kind of interesting. Do you think that President Trump should have done more to give some of the uh, newer media with a conservative bent and and more you know geared toward fairness and, and actual news more interviews than he did? How do you see that situation in retrospect?
2: Yeah, this is unfortunately a reality for people who like President Trump, uh, as I do. It it is, you know, wanted him to win both times and voted for him enthusiastically. Uh, This was a fundamental mistake he made, and uh, it, it needs to be identified so that the next Republican president doesn't make it. He did consistently try to win over the establishment press uh, at the expense of empowering the anti-establishment independent press. And they burned him time and again, with the clearest example being those disastrous coronavirus press briefings where he turned over the coronavirus narrative. To one of the worst groups of people on planet Earth, the, the press corps in Washington, D.C., yeah. uh, it's such a bubbled group. They're all the same people. Uh, there was no independent media, very little local media. There, were, there weren't there were any doctors in the room asking questions. Uh, and this was something that really, I think, illustrates a major point. And the next Republican president should know this. Do not empower The New York Times. Do not empower the CNNs and the NBCs and the Reuters of the world. You have to empower the talk radios and the independent media or else you're going to be rudderless when uh, when a catastrophe strikes. How do
0: you guard against the lure, as you mentioned before, the temptation to sell out to corporations or corporate interests just to keep your site afloat? Because that is a problem in journalistic outlets. You know, newspapers are getting hit very, very hard because of ad revenue going onto the Internet rather than going to, you know, newspapers of old. How do you guard against that and actually continue to have a website or a news outlet that really is independent and really will report the news and not take sides?
2: Yeah, this is the hardest question and one that I just started to address towards the end of the book. But it, there there needs to be an industry that is created that empowers people who are curious journalists and are, are genuinely committed to finding the truth, that there is an industry for them. It can be as simple as a Patreon or a Substack and subscribing to people who you believe in. Uh, but I do think the conservative donor class needs to focus a little less on political candidates uh, and much more on making sure that, that there is conservative, um, that there are mediums that are available for conservative ideas, pro-Judeo-Christian ideas, uh, to come forward through an American life in a mainstream way. Uh, This needs to be done. It's going to take time. It's going to take trial and error. Not everything will work. But I do think it's a matter of you voting with your dollars, you listeners out there, but also – if you are of means, I think those donors need to start thinking about investing in this industry.
0: Yeah, that's important. And also we continue to have the problem of big tech that hasn't finally been solved. Section 230 and all the, the stuff that went into going, you know, going into the election, people yelling about that as they should. But what do you do? Because when you have an independent news outlet, you still have to go on the Internet. And you can control to some extent your own website. That is if leftist activists don't try to take you down with your service provider. but they have different tactics that they use, but what of the future of social media and YouTube and some of these other means of getting the news out that are under threat by big tech, because so far the establishment Republicans really haven't reined them in.
2: What's the right path forward? You're so correct to raise this, and it's going to be a multi-pronged approach. And, you know, everyone talks about, how well, just build your own Twitter. Well, Parler did, yeah. and then Amazon kicked them off of their servers. Yep. So that, that kind of proves... Once and for all, build your own Twitters on that. though I'm all for building your own Twitter, and that should be part of it. But the next time Republicans get into power, they need to start making sure you can't discriminate uh, on these social media platforms ideologically. And that involves, uh, I, I think treating these platforms that are all monopolies as common carriers uh, is a start uh, so that they uh, again, can't discriminate. And I think breaking up some of these tech giants is essential if conservatism, uh, and really, a pro-Judeo-Christian Christian ethic is to survive uh, on these platforms in the future.
0: I completely agree. And get more governors like Ron DeSantis. But that's an entirely different show. <laughs> He's fantastic. But we'll see what Amen. happens with his career. But listen, this is a wonderful book. Alex Marlowe from Breitbart, a wonderful book called Breaking the News, Exposing the Establishment Media's Hidden Deals and Secret Corruption. Alex, so good to talk to you. Keep up the good work.
2: Thank you. Great conversation. Appreciate it. Yeah,
0: I appreciate you too. Thanks again. You're listening to Janet Meffer today. This archived broadcast of Janet Mefford Today is brought to you by Preborn. For $140, you can provide ultrasounds to five women in crisis pregnancies. Call now, 855 402 BABY. That's 855 402 2229 or janetmefford.com.
1: This is Janet Mefford Today. And now, here's your host, Janet Mefford.
0: Welcome back. Well, President Biden was off doing what he does best, which is dividing the country and saying absurd things. He's very good at that. He says a lot of absurd things. And yesterday, he unveiled his plan to expand the share of federal contracts awarded to small minority-owned businesses twofold by 2026 at a mere cost of $100 billion. And of course, anytime they put a figure on some plan, you can always double or triple or quadruple it, and that will be the actual cost. And who cares if you're $25, dot billion, trillion, I should say, in the whole as a nation why wouldn't you just throw more money to some program and introduce some kind of insane budget plan where you're spending billions on climate this and that it's like the guy is playing monopoly and all of the money in the United States is monopoly money and it doesn't really matter because at any time you could just walk away from the game and it doesn't matter who cares it's all monopoly I, I just I'm just amazed continually amazed that the American people are so dense that they will put up with this. Not you, not me. We understand what goes on when you spend money that you don't have and you keep going after people for more and more and more and more and more of their hard-earned money to pay for other people. That's what they do in communist countries. We actually were having this discussion over the weekend in my family about this issue. And we were talking about the federal government and the role of the federal government and what the federal government actually should do. In a perfect world. And we, we were talking about things like the fact that we need a national military. Certainly we do. We need to have infrastructure, not Biden type of infrastructure where you can just put climate initiatives under the rubric of infrastructure, but actual infrastructure, roads and bridges and things like that. You need a federal government to maintain those sorts of things and build roads. You need to be able to get around your country. Other than that, get out of our lives. I mean, that's how I really feel. I think when we discuss with our children, for example, the future of Social Security, you should, you'd be amazed to see how the discussion goes. We're never going to see Social Security, they say. And my husband and I say, yeah, we're probably not going to see it either at the rate we're going. And then the kids say, well, why in the world did people get forced into Social Security? It was a bad idea to begin with. Well, because not everybody saves and they want to make sure that people have enough money to live on when they're older. And we do want to make sure that people don't starve or get ejected from their homes. And, you know, there's some good ideas behind the notion that you shouldn't allow people in their old age to to be poverty stricken. I'm all for that. But was Social Security the greatest idea in the world? Eh, no. And then you couple with the fact that 60 million children have been slaughtered in this country, taking away a lot of the people who would have otherwise been paying into Social Security. And then you have to go and confront the left with some of its own bad ideas. How in the world are you going to keep your unfunded liabilities afloat if you kill off the next generation? They don't like to talk about that. The rest of the story here from the Washington Examiner. A senior administration official said ahead of the announcement that federal spending power is enormous. I think we could just say federal spending is enormous and has the potential to have an extraordinary impact on the racial wealth gap. The federal government is the largest consumer of goods in the world. All right. Well, fine. A racial wealth gap. Is that the job of the federal government to bring about equity, as Kamala Harris loves to call it and Biden loves to call it? Oh, equity. We need equity. Everything is a right now, except the right to life. I guess you don't have a right to life if you're an unborn baby, even though you're a citizen of the country because you're in the womb of a citizen of the country. You don't count. And As R.C. Sproul used to say, your government's fundamental job is to protect the lives of its citizens. That's the fundamental job, right? That's why we have a national military. So if your federal government is not protecting the lives of its citizens, why would you trust it to do anything further? And I keep thinking about that. I'm thinking, Dr. Sproul, you really nailed it back then, because you're absolutely right. And I'm a little jealous that he's in heaven, and we're all stuck down here. But one day we'll go to heaven, too. I'm looking forward to that. And we serve Christ as long as he has us here. And that's why we're here. So we can't complain about it. To live is Christ, to die is gain, as Paul used to say. I want to play, though, a couple of the cuts from Biden's appearance. Talking about um, the 100th anniversary of the Tulsa race massacre and this plan to invest $100 billion in small minority businesses. And this was one of the things he had to say. This is cut three.
1: We must not give hate a safe harbor. As I said in my address to the joint session of Congress, according to the intelligence community, terrorism from white supremacy is the most lethal threat to the homeland today. Not ISIS, not al-Qaeda, white supremacists.
0: Do you believe that? You really believe that? Do you really believe that white supremacy White supremacists are the most lethal threat to the homeland today. I don't believe that for a moment. Are there some outliers? Yes. Are there some wackos? Yes. Are there some people who are downright evil? Yes. I read about these people all the time. It's mainly... In my view, when you look at white people who are killing people, a lot of these are domestics. If you follow the news, you'll see boyfriend kills girlfriend or husband massacres family or things like that. And that's horrible and evil. But I don't believe for a minute that white supremacy is the most lethal threat to the homeland today. And I don't really care what the intelligence community says. Do you trust the full intelligence community? Sure, there are probably great people working there. There are probably a few good eggs left in the FBI, but the rest of them are useless. They're turning our military woke. They've they've taken all of this power as the deep state. The deep state is well entrenched in the federal government. And everything is a scheme with these people. And they're setting everything up, I think, for a really bad showdown at some point. And I don't want a showdown. I don't want any kind of showdown. I want the government coming after people under the guise of white supremacy and and spreading this lie that there's systemic racism. There's not systemic racism. There isn't. There are probably some people who judge people according to the color of their skin rather than the content of their character. And I would say that goes across lines. I don't think it's isolated to one particular racial group. I think people in all racial groups do that because they're people. And people do sinful things and people have sinful thoughts and things being wrong are a fact of life, but you have to deal with it. And and you don't deal with it by saying this one group is evil. Everybody else is pure. Everybody else is sinless and everybody else is, is great, but only this group, this is the only group that's evil. Why would people ever buy into that when we all know objectively that that's not true? There are bad people everywhere across the board. It's crazy. One of the other things Biden had to say, let's listen, cut four.
1: The data shows young black entrepreneurs are just as capable of succeeding, given the chance as white entrepreneurs are, but they don't have lawyers. They don't have, they they, they don't have accountants, but they have great ideas. Does anyone doubt this whole nation would be better off from the investments those people make. And I promise you, that's why I set up the National Small Business Administration that's much broader because they're going to get those loans.
0: All right. I have a question here. When you're talking about young black entrepreneurs being just as capable of succeeding, given the chance as white entrepreneurs, I have no problem with that. I'm sure that that's true. But what kind of statement is they don't have lawyers and they don't have accountants? Do young white entrepreneurs have a lawyer On retainer, when they're young, entrepreneurs, they have accountants just sitting around waiting for them to come up with good ideas for businesses. Uh, I don't think that's really true. In fact, I would go to the mat saying that's probably not usually true. Why, why would a white young entrepreneur have an access to an accountant that a black one would not? I mean, you're supposed to just all take this stuff at face value. If Biden says it, you can take it to the bank. Actually, if Biden says it, you better not take it to the bank because this is a guy who says all kinds of things that are flat out not true. Flat out not true. Why didn't America listen? and pay attention when this guy was outed as a plagiarist years ago. I go back to that. The reason I go back to that is because back in the day, people recognized that if you would do something like that, there's something wrong with your character, really wrong with your moral character. It's like Spurgeon talking about little sins, a great, great sermon that he preached once upon a time. If you pay attention to the little sins, he he said, basically, you'll never commit the big ones. If you're concerned about your character and little things you're never going to commit the big things that are wrong. And that's true. And if somebody thinks little sins are no big deal, then why in the world would you not expect them to commit big sins? It does matter. Character does matter. There's more to come. You're listening to Janet Meffer today. We'll be right back. fellow Christians are suffering in Africa this is Janet Mafford Pastor Lumo ministers in Mozambique near the Indian Ocean. He's been beaten and jailed many times, not merely for what he believes, but for how he lives out his faith. You see, Lumo has been quietly and faithfully sharing the gospel with Muslims, and many are coming to Christ. But extremists have assaulted Lumo, his family, and many in his church. But they're not asking for an end to the persecution they face. Instead, they're praying for God's word to endure and persevere as new followers of Christ.
3: I've seen people being changed by reading the scripture, giving a Bible to somebody is the greatest gift you can give somebody in life.
0: Through the ministry of Bible League International, you can send God's word to a new believer in Africa. $5 sends one Bible, $100 sends 20. Call now 800 Yes Word. That's 800 Y E S W O R D. Or there's an Open the Floodgates Bibles for Africa banner to click at com.
2: Many people in developing nations have no access to desperately needed medical care. That's why Mercy Ships brings volunteers aboard our hospital ship, the Africa Mercy, to give the world's forgotten poor the free medical care they need. We have an immediate need for registered nurses, especially with a pediatric specialty. As a volunteer nurse, you won't just give life-altering health care, you'll receive so much in return.
0: It's an amazingly rewarding experience.
2: You'll give hope and make a difference in the lives of those who have virtually no access to medical aid.
0: It's such a fantastic thing to do. Everybody who I've met on this ship either wants to come back and do it again or they're already here for the second, third, or tenth time.
1: So what are you waiting for?
2: Show mercy to someone today.
0: I would say go for it.
2: Get more information and learn how to apply by visiting mercyships.org forward slash nurses. That's mercyships.org forward slash nurses.
1: You're listening to Janet Mefford today. And now, here's Janet.
0: One more President Biden cut as he vows to invest $100 billion in small minority businesses. He had this to say, and I found it a little strange. This is Cut 5.
1: I challenge you, find today, when you turn on the stations, sit on one station for two hours, and I don't know how many commercials you'll see, lay eight to five, two to three out of five mixed-race couples in them that's not by accident they're selling soap man (laughs) (laughs) not a joke remember old pat used to say you want to know what's happening in american culture watch advertising because they want to sell what they have we have hope
0: what what is he talking about You should watch TV and notice all the advertisements that have mixed race couples and they're selling soap, man. That's not by accident. What what is your point? I don't even know what the point of bringing that up was, other than to have a weird Joe Biden senior moment where he just wandered off into the ether and said silly things. These people, these people are at the top echelon of government. I'm just amazed by this. I was saying not, not too long ago I was the last person in the world to say anything nice about Barack Obama. It's hard for me to come up with anything, but at least he was cognizant. I mean, really? And I'm not saying that was a good thing. Maybe if he had been more non-cognizant, we wouldn't have gotten as much nonsense out of his administration as we actually did. But this is ridiculous. This is just so embarrassing that you have this guy standing up uh, he was talking about some five-year-old in the crowd and going out into the crowd. This is just creepy and weird. And this guy is the president. It's just amazing to me. Oh, and by the way, the vice president was on with Mika Brzezinski, she of Morning Joe, giving her advice to young women. This, this is an interesting exchange. Cut to.
3: What's your advice to women in their 20s and 30s who feel like they have to pack it all in, who are stressed, who are like, feel like there's a clock ticking and that there's like a a time shelf on their life? One, um, continue with
0: your ambition Mm -hmm. and don't don't apologize for it. And continue to believe that you can do whatever you want to do, but also know you have a right to expect things like affordable childcare. You have a right to expect paid family leave when you need to take care of your children or your elderly parents. That you have a right to to expect that you will be seen in the full dimension of who you are and your responsibilities, and that they should be supported. These things can coexist. So what I say then, do not accept false choices. That you have to choose either this thing or that thing. That's a false choice. Don't accept it. What is she even talking about? That's not true. It's not true. You don't have a right to expect affordable health care. You don't have a right to expect paid family leave when you need to take care of your children. And it isn't true that there are false choices when you have to pick something over something else. It's ridiculous. It's just ridiculous. These people are not living on the planet reality. They're just spouting everything that they think their little base wants to hear and trying to make it sound like it's true. It's not true. If the clock is ticking on your life, I find that kind of interesting phraseology on the part of Mika Brzezinski, because when I think about a clock ticking on your life, I think about things like, oh, I don't know, having a baby, having several babies, having a family. These leftist feminists would say, put aside all of your natural desires to to be a mother, And have an abortion. If it gets in the way of your career, just get rid of it. You know, you can always have another one down the road. Who says you can have another one down the road? You're not guaranteed another pregnancy. And who says that a career is better than a family? A career is not better than a family. And I'm not trying to be mean to people who don't have children. Don't take it that way because that isn't what I'm talking about. What I'm talking about is these feminists just lie to young women. They lie about everything. You're going to be self-actualized if you'll just get that abortion. Everything will be fine because you can have a career and a career will fulfill you in a way that a family never will. They don't like the family. Why? Because the family is a problem when you want to make government the be all end all in people's lives. That's what they don't like. The family is a problem. The church is the problem. They have to undo those things. If you want to dismantle traditional America that is built on Judeo-Christian principles, then you have to get rid of those things. And you have to demonize those things in different ways. It's just shameful the way these people operate. I got to get to this. The College Fix had a story here because this does affect us as Christians. And they say this racism and the lost cause of the Confederacy is alive and thriving among today's white evangelical Christians, argued three religion professors featured on a recent panel hosted by the University of Virginia titled White Evangelical Racism, the Politics of Morality in America. It featured Larisha Hawkins. You remember that name? She was the professor at Wheaton College who got in trouble for saying that Christians and Muslims worship the same God. She called the Midwest Confederate. <laughs> look i'm from chicago if there is any place in the midwest that is not confederate it is chicago are you kidding me that's about as believable as jesse Smollett saying that he was attacked in the middle of the night by people yelling this is maga country <laughs> right every chicagoan laughed their head off when he made that claim yeah there are a lot of trump supporters running around the city chicago at night attacking black actors black gay actors okay Sure. She says the Midwest is Confederate, but they also featured Anthea Butler, who's Associate Professor of Religious and Africana Studies at the University of Pennsylvania. She wrote a book called White Evangelical Racism, The Politics of Morality in America. Listen to this particular exchange. This is cut one.
2: I want to give you the last word for today's conversation. What do you have for us as we move out, continue to engage this text and really continue to engage uh, with the, with the twin crisis, yeah. crisis of religion, democracy, and not to chop the planetary crisis of our existence
3: as much as I hate to say this i 'm going to put it this way. If evangelicals don't change, they pose an existential crisis to us all. They have divided the nation politically. They don't want to believe in climate change. They don't want to get vaccines, as we've seen in the New York Times. They are part and parcel of the reason why we cannot move forward, because they say they have religious beliefs, but this is religious recalcitrance. It is not something that is about belief. It is not what they believe theologically. It is about a positionality that they have, that they have chosen to have, that is taking us all over the brink. they are being selfish and because they don't care, their racism, their sexism, their homophobia, their their lack of uh, belief in science, lack of belief in common sense may end up killing us all. And so I would ask anybody who's evangelical today to get this book, to read it, to share it with your friends, and to ask yourself, if you want to be a part of this, is this what Jesus has called you to do, the Jesus you claim to serve? And if it's not, then I ask you to turn away. And that is what this book is all about. Reading history so that you will understand what you are complicit in and what you have been a part of.
0: I'm not buying your book. I'm not reading your book. I'm not promoting your book. I think you're awful. And we need to say things like that. I really believe that. If you are going to accuse people who disagree with you as being racist and sexist and homophobic and capable of killing everybody, then you are a slanderer and I am offended. I am so tired of listening to this talk and when you see Biden and the deep state talking about white supremacy being the biggest threat to America the biggest threat to homeland security more so than ISIS or Muslim terrorists or Antifa or Black Lives Matter or all those people who caused all the mayhem during the last summer's riots and looting and killing Trump supporters and killing people in the streets. They never talk about that do they? It's all white supremacists. Oh it's white evangelical Christians. No it's Not. No, it's not. The divisiveness is coming from them. It's not coming from your average patriotic American who just wants to go to work or raise the children or do the homeschooling and go to church and learn the Bible and follow Jesus Christ as you ought to be able to do in a free country. And then you turn on the news and you hear this rot day after day after day. It's just sludge coming out of the sewer. And I, I think the time has come when we need to not just listen to it and, oh, well, you're wrong. I just don't agree with you. Just call it out for what it is. That's a complete lie, and it's dangerous to speak like that because that's inciting. That's inciting people. You're insulting people. You're lying about people. You're demonizing people, and you're marginalizing people. And Barack Obama would be proud because he, who loved Saul Alinsky so much, engaged in the same sorts of tactics. And that's the truth. That's the truth. The people who want to divide and conquer, the people who want to insult and malign, it's not coming from your average patriotic American of any color. It's coming from these people. And we really need to fight back against it and pray for this country. We got to go. Thanks a lot for being with us. God bless you. We'll see you next time.